0: Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener. I've been using Scrivener since 2014, And I never looked back. It's an amazing tool for writers. And then it lets you build research in the same document that you're doing your work. You can put in images and PDFs. You can organize your work using the corkboard view. You can set goals. You can export it to multiple formats, including ebook and manuscript. There's really nothing Scrivener can't do in the writing universe. And I highly recommend it, which is why I'm so pleased that they're a sponsor. If you'd like to check them out, you can follow the link from our website or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code STORYDISCOVERY at checkout. If you're a writer and you haven't tried Scrivener, I highly recommend it. Give Scrivener a try. You won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, Stories, and Poems, are copyright 2022, all rights reserved. On today's show, you'll hear a short excerpt from the novel, Fake, written by our special guest, John Dedeckes, and narrated by Meredith Lyons. Settle in and enjoy.
1: As the organist at Washington's National Cathedral played something soothing and pastoral, my thoughts turned once again to God. I found myself instantly having to fight to keep my own emotions in check. God and I aren't always on speaking terms. It's a love-hate thing. I've talked about this a lot with Chris, my grief counselor. I began to seriously question the faith of my youth when I was sexually assaulted in college and found myself lurching towards atheism. Yet I didn't lose my faith completely. Yes, there's plenty of evidence God doesn't exist. So many assholes live long and easy lives while good people die young. As I've thought about the vastness of the cosmos and the complexity of even the tiniest forms of life, I've recognized an amazing symmetry that suggests to me the existence of an intelligent designer behind the universe's intricate design. But that's not proof God exists. It's only evidence. The rest is faith. My faith amounts to one mustard seed, maybe two, but not three. That's because of the events of the past few years, not to mention the past 24 hours. To be honest, my faith is tested by the most sanctimonious and tolerant certainties of the doctrinaire extremists who use God as a cudgel. Yes, I'm talking to you, Osama bin Laden, but I'm also talking to you, Westboro Baptist Church, and your God-hates-fags gay bashing. When being brutally honest with myself, I realize that most of the times I pray, I'm in some kind of a jam. But lately I'm seeing a certain gratitude emerging. I can now argue, with a smidge of confidence, that God not only exists, but has probably gotten me out of a lot of tight situations. Or maybe I'm just lucky. All those thoughts and biases were a swirl in me as I settled in for the funeral service for Rose Gannon, First Lady of the United States of America.
2: You've just listened to an excerpt from Fake, a novel by our special guest, John Didakis. Welcome, John. Thanks, Melissa. We're very excited to have you on the show. John is an award winning novelist, writing coach and teacher, manuscript editor, and former White House correspondent and editor at CNN's The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. Incidentally, he is also a jazz drummer. <laughs> so we have some exciting things to talk about, a lot to cover, including and especially John's new novel, Fake, which we just heard that excerpt from narrated by meredith lyons this is part of his lark chadwick series featuring his strong-willed strong-minded and female protagonist lark chadwick so we're going to be hearing more about that in a second but let's start john with you introducing yourself a little bit more let's tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself
3: well let's see i'm from La Crosse, wisconsin which is on wisconsin's west coast otherwise known as the mississippi river um I retired from CNN in 2013, and now I write full-time. I uh, teach writing classes at different literary centers, writing conferences uh, around the country. Um, I edit people's manuscripts. I'm a one-on-one writing coach. Um, I'm still writing novels. I've just finished the first draft—well, actually, the second draft of a a memoir. And I'm—yeah, I'm I'm probably busier and happier than I was for the— First 45 years of my career. <laughs> I highly I recommend it. retirement. Oh, <laughs> That's great.
2: Excellent. Well, tell us about this novel, Fake. So when when did it come out?
3: It came out in 2019. Okay. Uh, I want, it needed to come out before the 2020 election. I, I, uh, uh, I started writing it when Trump was elected president. And I didn't write it to become an anti-Trump polemic, but I was certainly troubled by his accusation, basically, that journalists are the enemies of the American people. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did a lot to undermine trust in a number of institutions, including the press. And so I wanted to give people an understanding of the consequences of fake news, of people posting things that are demonstrably not true, but they don't care. And so uh, Mm. I went to my agent and I said, "Uh, I need to get this out before the election. When do you need the manuscript? And she said, in two months. And I hadn't finished the first draft yet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I got it done in time and went through my beta readers. And, you know, I just
2: accelerated the pace and got it out there.
0: Wow. That's great.
2: It is. And it's such a, it's very timely, but it's very interesting that you write this as a woman. Your POV character is a woman. Why do you write as a woman? And how hard is it for you to write as a woman?
3: There are really two answers to that. The superficial answer to your question, why do I write as a woman, is that when I first started writing fiction, because my background is nonfiction, journalism. Right. Um, when, I, when I first started playing with fiction, someone suggested that I should write in a way that stretches who I am. Well, I'd never been a woman, at least not in this <laughs> life. So um, I started doing that, and I discovered that it was possible because I discovered that emotions are not gender-specific. We all right. have the exact same emotions. It's, it's just that in my experience, the women in my life are more willing to express their emotions. Mm -hmm. They're more articulate about their emotions. They draw from a much more varied uh, emotional palette. And so I just found that women were interesting as characters. And because I was at CNN for 25 years, that's 25 years worth of young women in their early to mid 20s, interns, new hires, who would tell me their stories about their boyfriends, their careers you know, their families. And I'm a curious person and I would just pump them for information. Yeah. You know, I mean, one, I remember one woman I asked, you know, what's it like for guys to hit on you all the time? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she said, and this was, this was really instructive. She said, I can tell in the first 20 seconds if I'm safe. And it's like, that that was not my experience. You know? So listening to women talk about being women was incredibly instructive and then of course many of these women became my beta readers who would you know be the canary in the mind telling me what i'm yeah. getting right and more importantly what i'm getting wrong so that's the superficial reason the the more in-depth reason i discovered only after i'd written the first four novels oh because i discovered that there's a i've one of the things in in writing is that you're tapping into your creativity through your subconscious. Great. And it's my experience that writing is like dipping a straw into your subconscious. And as you ask yourself questions about what if and what would this be like, it's like sipping from your subconscious and the information and the and the creativity goes through your fingers and onto the page i Mm. love that and so what i discovered is that i i'm really writing lark as a woman i wish my sister had allowed herself to become
0: because my
3: sister killed herself 40 years ago really and she Mm. she was married to this guy who basically said You know, she she was brilliant. She could have been a surgeon. She could have been a concert pianist. And he basically said, what would it look like, a a surgeon married to a football coach? And so one by one, she gave up her dreams Mm -hmm. and 20 years later, went into the garage, shut the door, turned on the car and ended it. And so, you know, one of the things I teach my writing students is that, you know, our society anesthetizes the pain. Yes. And as writers, I think that the pain is really the grist for our fiction. You mm-hmm. write what you yeah. know. And yeah. I, know, I know pain and loss. Yeah, And so it wasn't until I'd written the first three novels that I discovered the real reason was because I wanted to create a character I wish my sister uh, had allowed herself to become. Because Lark does not let herself become a victim. She doesn't let a guy define who she is. Yeah. And yet she falls for the bad boys and all that stuff. So, (laughs) you know, it just was an evolutionary process of self-understanding and self-knowledge that helped me better understand why I write as a woman. Long answer. I apologize. No, that's a good answer. No.
0: Yeah. Well, let me follow up on that Um, because the novel I've been working on has a one of the major protagonists is a woman. And so what are some of the mistakes that you made early on or that you see your students make early on when writing, since you're getting feedback from folks? I don't know. Well, <laughs> I mean, I,
3: I think that, I mean, there was one guy in my class who basically said, <laughs> this is a quote, he said, I do not understand women, therefore I don't write them. And well. <laughs> I, I appreciated his honesty. Does but he not also, have
2: women in his women
3: well, no, characters? are probably novels. all war stories. You know? okay, like, okay. I mean, it's like, <laughs> God, man, your books are probably really boring because women are fascinating. <laughs> of course he is. But on the other hand, he was probably playing it safe. But, you know, I would say the biggest mistake, if there is one, is that people need to just get to know other people. You need to widen your horizon. Yes, it's important to write what you know, but it's also important to, you know, write what you don't know and to educate yourself, you know, in those shadow areas, in those blind spots that we've got. And so I think the the more you widen your horizon, the more varied your characters will be because they're not just based on the bubble you exist in. Mm.
2: Yes, I think that is such a good point. And I wanted to challenge myself with my short story blog that I started. And so I started writing a story based on a nonfiction piece that someone gave me. And it was more on the romantic side. Well, I didn't write romance and I didn't, it wasn't really a thing that I read a lot. My biggest is thrillers and psychological thrillers. I love those things. But I challenged myself and it ended up being a novel and it's how I got my agent. So it was just, You know, it was a great experience to explore. So I completely get that idea of wanting to explore other people and other sides of things. I think you learn a lot about yourself and you maybe find a path that you didn't know existed for you.
3: Exactly. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. And obviously it worked because uh, someone who's not related to you doesn't, you know, doesn't love you for you. You know, they love your writing. And so you must have done it right. (laughs) <laughs> Which is
0: it's a nice thing to, uh, nice thing to hear. <laughs> well, let me let me ask a question. Um, so journalism, writing, and novel writing, big differences. Was it hard for you to make the switch? Tell us about that.
3: It was hard to give myself permission to make things up, because unlike what some presidents will tell you, it is a firing offense in journalism to make mm-hmm. things up. Mm-hmm. The the thing that made it easier though to write fiction is that the essence of journalism is to be clear, you know, to be efficient in the way you express things. And so really that was, I think, an advantage that I had as a trained journalist to be able to write my fiction. And it's just, it's just basically a longer form, but the principle is the same, you know, keep it simple, be clear. You don't have to be fancy. You need to be clear. Mm -hmm. And so that was, uh, uh, That was what equipped me going forward as a as a writer of fiction.
2: Hmm. I think that's great. How did you get started in journalism? You knew that's what you wanted to do. No,
3: my my dad was a lawyer, so he and I were going to go into practice together. Oh, that's definitely different. It is, (laughs) and 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 I was going to use the law as a stepping stone to get into politics. Okay, and to be perfectly honest with you, my plan was to become president of the United States.
1: Wow. I love all it. Right. Well, yeah. well,
3: for the good of the country, I went in a different direction. But, uh, but I mean, I really was serious about going in that direction. And the reason that I didn't is that I, I was a student at the University of Wisconsin in Madison in the late 1960s when the Vietnam War was in all the papers. It was a big mm. deal. Yeah. And they had a draft. And if you had a number below 150, chances are you were going to get plucked from society and sent to the jungles of Vietnam. My number Mm -hmm. was 14. So it didn't look good. And the thing that bothered me is when I, and because the anti-war movement was seething on all U.S. campuses, college campuses, um, I was bombarded from both the left and the right to take a position for or against the war. And what bothered Mm. me was that the rhetoric was so overheated from both the left and the right that I just felt that when I was being spun, people were leaving out salient details that would undermine their position. Because I didn't really know. I mean, my parents were Nixon Republicans. War is good business. Invest your son. So, you know, that that was my predisposition. Yeah. But the University of Wisconsin was incredibly liberal. And I was hearing things from the other side that I hadn't really heard before. And so I chose journalism, volunteering at a campus radio station, you know, as the perch to sit on to sort of sift and winnow to find out what the facts are. And so that's basically how I got started in journalism.
1: That is wow. great.
0: Yeah. Mm. So the neat. number you received, I've never had to deal with the draft. So explain that a little bit.
3: Well, they it was a lottery system. And so they drew basically... Uh, birth dates out of the drum, uh, the Selective Service did, and uh, the first date that was pulled out of the drum, you know, that number, anybody born on that date got a number one. Oh, and My birthday was the 14th that was drawn, so I my draft uh, number was 14, and probably the, I mean, I enlisted to avoid the draft yeah. because I would have more control over what I'd do because I discovered yeah. they had something called military journalism. Who
1: knew? Yeah. yeah. so. <laughs>
3: I had orders to Vietnam, they were changed at the last minute to Germany, and I spent two and a half years at the headquarters of the American Forces Radio and Television Network in Frankfurt, Germany, doing interviews for a special events radio unit. And the first interview I did was with this guy named Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, that that was a life-changing experience. Yes, it is. Journalism became, you know,
0: the plan. Yeah! Wow, well, it's a great way to meet people. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I'll say, yeah.
2: So your path was carved by that incident, which yeah. I think is fascinating. Yeah, and so it led you into nonfiction, you know, reporting right. and everything like that. Yep. And then you transitioned into writing fiction. Yeah,
3: and, and I did um, while I was still at CNN because they made me an editor. I'd been a reporter. I'd covered the White House. I mean, I but but I discovered that editing is tedious. It's fault finding, but it pays well. And by this time, by this time, (laughs) I had a wife and a mortgage and three kids. So, you know, I did them. I did the editing thing, but I needed a creative outlet. And that's when I started playing with fiction. Mm
2: -hmm. Like that. And you fell in love immediately.
3: I think so. Yeah, because it it was freeing and um, it, it was it was. Difficult at times, it was frustrating at times because it took ten years to get the agent that I've got. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the manuscript went through fourteen major revisions, yeah. Kept getting better. And you know, the better it got, the more confident I got that I could really do this. But I never really intended, you know, to leave journalism and do this full time. That just happened.
2: Mm. Wow. So you've written four other novels, and you've written many novels, correct? But you've written four other novels in the Lark Chadwick series.
3: Yeah. Five five novels altogether. I'm as surprised as you are. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so tell us about a little bit more about these and how they kind of connect to each other and how you got started on this particular series.
0: Well, and wait, one ahead. more question. Yeah. The next question, I have not read them yet, so uh, it's on my list. However, so I know that she's in her 20s. My question is: Yes, does she get older throughout the series, or are you snapshotting it? Like, oh, well, yeah, to she, your she
3: starts out. I think she's. <laughs> I mean, I had her starting out at about twenty-two or something, and one of my beta readers says, no, nah, you need to make her a little older." And okay. and another and another bit of advice was. You know, if you're going to have a series, you know, don't have your protagonist in her seventies or something, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. give her yeah. a little time to grow. That makes sense. Yeah. And so I would say that the five novels she's got she's probably aged really only a few years. Um, okay. I mean, I'm, I, she's growing. She starts out pretty impulsive, um, with anger issues. She's always struggling with that, but she's learning from her mistakes. Hmm. Um, yes. I don't know what more do you want me to say about that, but uh,
0: that's all. But we'll go back to your question, Melissa, which was, how does a series kind of work? Or
2: yeah, and and how with a series do you have to read them in order for one? And you then don't I, you, yeah go ahead. well. You no, don't. You go ahead. I mean, I've
3: okay. I've written them. They 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 read fine as a series re- written and read chronologically. But I've written them so that if you pick it up, you know, anywhere along the way. It won't spoil things for you. You'll it's know that things happened beforehand, yeah. but it won't spoil it for you. So you can go back and 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 catch up.
2: I like that. I think that's great because Thanks. that way you can capture a reader anywhere along your journey. Exactly. And you don't. But it's still going to pique your interest because if you fall in love with a character, and I love, I love Lark. Thank you. Um, it's so fun. And speaking about this book, one question I didn't ask when we were talking about in the beginning, that I wanted to was why you chose this particular excerpt. Because it's not the beginning of your novel, which I find very interesting. Because the beginning of your novel is, like, draw you in. I was hooked. I thought, whoa, I'm excited to get to the next page. So tell me why you chose, or tell us why you chose.
3: Well, the excerpt that uh, Meredith read is Lark in the National Cathedral as part of the press pool for the funeral of the First Lady who dies in the first chapter of Fake and it's very this, good. Thank very you. Very well written. Thank you. Um and so I think the president has arrived but the service hasn't started and so Lark who is also processing her own grief and her own issues is listening to the organist play, you know, soothing pastoral music and her thoughts are adrift. And I I wanted that to be read for a couple of reasons because one, I think it deepens a character when you get a sense of their spirituality, whatever it happens to be. And the other thing is that I think people don't understand journalism. You know, they think that journalists are You know, really, people thought that we at CNN sat around deciding, how are we going to get Barack Obama elected president? (laughs) And, Mm. and, uh, you know, let me tell you, you know, we talked more about how much sleep we were getting than the news. Uh, (laughs) You know, uh, it is not like that. And, uh, and, And yet, journalists are human. And they do have biases and prejudices. And they wrestle with those. And it's the professional's who are able to recognize what their bias is and then set it aside in order to be fair to the other side. And so we hear Lark ruminating about how she feels viscerally about things that are going on in the world.
2: Yeah, and I really like that because you get the internals of politics. So you get that side of things, but you also get a lot of just internal human thought. There's a lot of psychology in your book. In this book. She's going through grief. She's going through all this past trauma. She's working through it. It's affecting how she's looking at what what she's got going on right now that she's faced with. And so it's very fascinating. Lots of different layers here.
3: Thank you. And you're a woman and you seem to be captivated by larks. So encouraging I, yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and I think you.
2: that it's well, I think you writing a man writing as a woman, you've done a very good job. I didn't read and I haven't gotten through the whole book, but um where I am so far, you know, I have not seen anything where I'd be like, oh no, this this is a man. This is not a woman. Thank here. you. So Thank I you. so yeah, I think it's very well done.
0: Thanks. Good. Well, in terms of the series aspect of it, so it sounds like you're surprised that it's a series. <laughs>
3: I didn't <laughs> Maybe. look it was hard, it was hard enough just to get an agent and get published. <laughs> yes. So right, right. you know, yes. that's where all you know first time authors, all of their attention goes into the first book. And of course the Dane right. The danger is all these other ideas that come at you, you feel like you've got to shoehorn them into this one book because it's your yeah. only chance. <laughs> right? yep. And uh, as it turns out, an agent is going to be particularly interested in you if you've, you know, they're going to say, what else are you working yeah, on?
0: That's right? right.
3: And so if you've got other, other books in the series already, you know, that you're thinking about, you're ahead of the curve.
0: So is it. that how this happened? You wrote the first one, and then you, as you're writing, you come up with other ideas for other books. Yes,
3: and with Fast Track, which is the first novel, I mean, I didn't. I had other ideas, but I wasn't really paying any attention to them hmm. until there was an agent who was interested. And 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 when I started to have agent interest, then I started to work on the second book. Oh, interesting. In the,
0: well, and this is a question we sometimes ask. So, are you then a discovery writer, or do have you mapped this all mapped out? Like, do you also have your next books ready in the LARP? Yes. Ooh boy, that's a, that's an
3: intriguing question. I actually it teach a, is. I teach a class on this. You basically you're talking about the classic, you know, seat of the pants writer yep. versus uh, planning. Yes. And, and I've discovered that I'm a planter. Uh, um, I love it. <laughs> yes, you know, i i I like to know where I'm going, mm-hmm. but I never am quite effective enough in planning. And so what I discover is about halfway through, I hit a wall because even though I know who the bad guy is and who's how it's going to end, yeah, I haven't really connected the dots clearly enough. Yeah, and mm. there comes a point where I can only procrastinate so long, and then I just have to write because writing, I discovered, is the way to defeat writer's block. It's counterintuitive. Um, you write by, by overcoming writer, writer's block. Yes. And as you write, things show up. And so that's how basically my, my fourth novel, Bullet in the Chamber, uh, I, I wrote half of the book, Seat of the Pants, uh, mm-hmm. you know, not knowing how a chapter would end until I actually started it. And it actually got all the way to the last paragraph because I could have ended it three different ways and I didn't make up my mind until
2: I was writing that
3: last chapter.
0: Um, wow, that's cool.
2: Yes. I completely agree with you though. As you write, you find out more and the characters kind of tell you things. Right. And you're Oh, well, I can add that to the beginning and you that's how you mm-hmm. get some of your layers.
3: That's why that's why God created rewrites. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple <laughs> rewrites. Right. <yes.
2: laughs> Oh. So you you mentioned a little bit of about your fourth novel, Bullet in the Chamber, and that deals with something very personal to you, correct? And I think a lot of people have this fear about putting themselves on the page and exposing some of those really delicate and intense moments in their lives. So for you, this deals with the death of your 22 year old son.
3: That's right. Yeah.
2: And you were very personal. Can you tell us about that?
3: Well, let's see. Um... My son, Stephen, was 22. We lived in D.C. He was um, a funny guy, and he was a cook. He taught himself how to play drums, how to play guitar. He probably could have gone about six different directions in his life. And um, he uh, he got addicted to heroin. <clears throat> and I didn't know that until probably the last month of his life. And I don't even Ooh. I don't even think I knew how serious it was until he went missing, oh, and wow. that was out of character for him. He just fell off the grid, and um, so, you know, immediately I filed a missing persons report, and um, he was missing for a week and uh, ended up dead in my car a block and a half from our house in D.C., Ugh. right beneath a, a a light pole with a neighborhood watch sign on. Oh, my goodness. That gives me chills. And I went through grief counseling for about, Two and a half years. I actually started writing the book maybe eight months after he died, but it was too soon. Yeah, I imagine. Some of those chapters still live in the, I can't remember how many drafts it went through, maybe seven or eight. Um, Some of those drafts, you know, were repurposed and and still live. But um, when I actually started writing it, I was going through grief counseling and I decided, I mean, I already had Lark as a character. Mm -hmm. and so i sort of i already had a fact base based on the the character and some of the preceding novels Mm -hmm. and so uh one of the characters we meet in troubled water the third novel is still with lark in bullet in the chamber the fourth novel in which she's a white house correspondent Mm -hmm. and i'd covered the white house and uh and her boyfriend is working as a photographer in the press pool for for they both work at AP, and um, and so I took Stephen's story or at least the collateral damage that happened and used that as a subplot for Bullet in the Chamber, which I, I felt added authenticity to Lark's character, Definitely. deepened Ooh. her character, but at the same time there were elements of the story that I could attach to a bigger who done it
2: okay now i'm very i mean this is it's tragic and it's inspiring that you use it in your novel i think for others do you feel like this was something that helped you heal helped you work out your own feelings as a part of therapy
3: oh definitely and in fact you know i mentioned my sister's suicide and, yeah. and that was cathartic to write that in yeah. the first novel but I'd never really gone through grief counseling then. And, of course, losing a son is, you know, intense to the nth degree. Uh, so un-
2: Unimaginable.
3: And so, yes, it was mm-hmm. definitely therapeutic. And yet, i I mean, it was therapeutic for me personally. And you mentioned psychology. I think I want to broaden this a little bit because I think that I think all writers, if they really are serious about it, will go there move toward the, move toward the pain and mine that, mine that, and, you know, bring it, process it, work it through. Um, because I think that, you know, that's, that's a really, it's, it's cathartic and it's healing. I mean, I think healing is a good word for you to use. Yeah. Um, and I think also it can be, well for lack of a better word perhaps helpful or instructive or in some way meaningful for the reader as well because i think good writing is going to be authentic it's going to be touching on themes that another person can relate to because yes. i i think that we read books in order to immerse ourselves into the lives of another person right mm-hmm. and it's and it's a form of escape because You know, we live risk averse lives. You know, we we try to, (laughs) you know, have our lives be as smooth as possible. And so if you can throw the kitchen sink at your protagonist, then you are giving them problems to overcome that you don't necessarily have to go through. But if you're being honest, you probably have already gone through them. And so you're giving your reader. A vicarious experience that maybe they'll learn from, yes. and and uh, either not have to go through that, or if they're going through it, maybe they'll find their way through based on what you. Heard.
2: Yes, yeah, I love that. It's relatable, but it it teaches somebody who's going through it that they're not alone. Yes. But it also tells somebody who hasn't gone through it, gives them an insight into what it would be like for somebody else that Absolutely. might not be able to express themselves like the like you have in your books. And so Yes. I right. think also
3: have you considered writing? <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about it a little yeah. bit.
0: <laughs> well, reading is like the ultimate in empathy, really, right? You're putting yourself yeah. in someone else's shoes and then Very you good. feel those emotions. You get those experiences with vicariously, like you said, John. So yes. Absolutely. I think reading really makes you a better person, even if you never do half those things that, you know, everybody else that you read about does.
3: (laughs) Thank you. That's a a great insight.
0: (laughs) Well, we are, believe it or not, already coming up on time here. Do you want to do one more question before we go to our end question, Melissa? I
2: would love to talk a little bit about um, promoting yourself as an author. I mean, there are tons of questions we didn't get to, and I could pick your brain for a very long time. I know. (laughs) Um, Especially, you know, editing side of things and how you teach people writing. But one thing that a writer has to do is promote themselves on social media and get their name out there. Because if you have a product, that's great. But if nobody knows about it, you can't Mm -hmm. sell it. Nobody knows about you. It doesn't go anywhere and you don't thrive. So kind of talk a little bit about um, promoting yourself and using social media and how kind of tying several questions into one here. I'm cheating. It's
0: okay. We we can go extra.
2: Yeah. You know, how... Those joys, the frustrations and everything of promoting yourself, because it is so hard to do. It's
3: it's hard. And I think it's surprising because I think that, you know, people spend most of their time trying to get the book published. And then once it is, they think, well, got that taken care of.
2: That's right. I'm all done. (laughs) And
3: the times have changed. And even if you get a book deal with Random House, you know, gone are the days that they're going to pay for your cross-country book tour. You know, Mm. unless you're John Grisham and you don't need it. Yeah. And, and so uh, even when it comes time to pitching, you're going to need to communicate to a prospective agent that you understand and are committed to promoting your own work. Right. But And that's daunting to a writer, especially because I think most writers, if they're anything like I am, they're shy and or introverted. Yeah. And so the idea of putting yourself out there is is scary. It's daunting. Yeah. Yes. And so, I mean, I teach a class on this and it's, it's, I believe that it's possible to do that in a way that doesn't change who you are as a person. And I think the essence of effective promotion is that you're just telling, not selling. You don't yeah. have to persuade someone Ooh. to buy your book. All you need to do is tell them that you've written one and there are a gazillion ways to let people know about that yeah. it's it's basically a bottomless pit you can spend all your time on marketing and never really you know exhaust all the possibilities yeah so marketing actually can become fun because if you think of it i mean why do you write in the first place you write to connect with other people mm-hmm. and the most and so promotion is just completing the circuit it's connecting with another person. If you if you approach it in terms of one to one communication, that's a great idea. You can still do that through social media, where you can reach a mass audience. But if you approach it mentally as just you talking to another person, I think that that will, in a sense, destigmatize what marketing is all about.
2: Yes, I like that, and I've I've heard that more and more. Of you know, it's not about numbers or how many views you get it's about actually connecting with people yeah and actually yeah. caring and once you stop caring about how you look and start caring about the person that you're trying to have a conversation with it really changes how your self-promotion goes because then it it's, it's almost I like mean- not self-promotion
3: well it is and and you have a very effective newsletter because you know you, you you have you have <laughs> something that's motivational you're very vulnerable about sharing some of your personal life um you know you give suggestions i mean you know it seems as though based on the my reading of it that your newsletter is a, an extension of who you are
2: personally it, it's very true i do lay it all out there in my newsletter thank you thank you for saying that
0: mhm well, so um, before we get to the last question, then, so from a marketing perspective, do you have a top three on the social media side, or even just any that you choose to do?
3: Well, I podcasts
0: mean, I, being one of them. Well, I, <laughs> I have a I have a
3: podcast, and I basically interview other, you know, usually writers, but not just writers, but uh, you know, I basically put the spotlight on somebody else. But as far as social media, I use Facebook because I think it's very dynamic. I think that you know, it's very visual. You can do visuals with it, but Mm -hmm. there's also a certain degree of depth with it and immediacy. In -hmm. fact, the podcast that I do, it's a video podcast. It airs live on Facebook and YouTube. And then um, I supplement that with LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn, it's a very Hmm. professional type of uh, social media platform. And so once I do the live podcast, I take that link and put it on LinkedIn as well. But I find that Facebook by far is you know much more interactive. I'm on Instagram, um, but those are pretty much linked. I'm on Twitter, but Twitter—I don't know—that's just too much of the chatterverse for me. I, I'm <laughs> yeah. not a—I mean, if you can master Twitter, you can become president. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh <it>. boy! Yes.
0: <laughs> so you know that
3: that ship has sailed, and I'm not going to try to do that. So uh, I'm on Twitter, but not effectively. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's and it's hard to do. You don't have it to say all. yes.
3: You don't have to say yes, like, yeah, we know you don't get it.
0: <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, <laughs> I mean.
2: I'm right there with you. Oh, I am right there with you. I have tried. I get all hyped up and I'm like, yes, I'm going to do Twitter. I'm going to do Instagram. I'm going to do Facebook. And then I realize I am not doing anything effectively. Yeah. And I've had to hone in my focus to really kind of do one or two platforms and focus on those, because yeah. you just can't do it all. There's not enough time in the day.
3: Well, and you're on Instagram, and I mean, you and Meredith are really effective <laughs> on Instagram. We have and so I much I encourage fun. people to follow you guys. Oh, because, thank you so much. Awesome. You know, because you you have such a great rapport and a great sense of humor that that shows in the relationship the two of you have.
2: Yes. that uh, Writing bonded us, and it has been just a, a really fun friendship, and we've been able to share our work together. And it, I think it does show in those in those yeah. duet reels that we do in the videos and stuff. We, we, we have a lot of fun.
3: Yeah, it shows.
0: It shows. That's cool. Yeah. Well, from Onyx Publications' perspective, the only time we ever post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram is is when we have something to say, <laughs> which is not very often, right? So you know, it's it, like, submit your stories. And here are some of the stories we ha- have available now. <laughs> I know
2: it's so, so hard too because I get excited. I even think, oh yes, I'm going to do some onyx posts, and then it's like, well, I'm drowning with my own posts. Exactly.
0: And it, <laughs> yeah. It's it, just it's a rabbit hole you can spin down into. It is for sure. Yeah. It's totally. It's, yeah.
2: And I am. I don't know about you guys, but I tend to have all these ideas, and I have a very hard time focusing on one area because I'm thinking, I'm going with this one area. What else am I missing? I'm always thinking, what yeah. else am I missing? What else am I not doing? And it's dangerous because then if you it, if you flounder all over the place, yeah, nobody mm-hmm. knows really what you stand for and what you're about.
3: Have you mm-hmm. had to find a way to balance your marketing time with your writing time?
2: Oh, definitely. It will stress me out. And I think I'm not writing. I'm spending my time yeah. trying thinking about marketing or what I'm going to do. Yeah, And, and really, I enjoy the marketing side some. Yeah.
3: I, I, I surprised myself by enjoying it as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And had to rein myself back. Go on, I, yeah. interrupted. Oh, no, that's I, interesting. I interrupted you. Go ahead. No,
2: no. You, it can take you over because I've realized you have to find something that you enjoy doing if you're going to market yourself. And I found that the Instagram reels are really fun. So I really enjoy doing that. But it is, it'll start going, I'll be like, oh, we can do this, and we can do that. And, <laughs> and then I'm saying, oh, I probably should write some today. You Oh, know? that, so, oh,
3: that. Yeah, yeah,
0: oh, that. The thing that I'm
2: put out, out there for in the first place, but yes.
0: Good stuff. It is. All it's right. Tough. Well, I think that's a good segue into um, the wrap, coming up to our last question for the day, which is to share any piece of writing advice, maybe something that you wish you'd known when you started or any other nugget to um beginning writers or listeners who are just curious.
3: I think that writers tend to be very self-critical. And I think that if you listen too carefully to that, you know, self-critical person who tells you oh, you have no business doing this, you're no yeah. good. Look at that person. They're so much better than you. And you know, if, if you, if you give in to listening to the critic, uh, you'll talk yourself out of it. Mm. So my advice is don't give up, you know? Yes, you're not the best, but you're probably better than others. And, you know, those who are better than you can, you can learn from them and mm-hmm. get better. Yes. So if, if you feel that you're, you know, writing isn't as good as it should be great, take some cl- classes. Get better,
1: yeah. You know, right. hone
3: hone your craft, but uh, don't talk yourself out of it. Because if you've got the desire, that tells you something, and it's the desire that will propel you forward. And if you give up too soon, then that guarantees that you won't be published.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's, that's
2: yeah. I think that's great advice. I was looking at a small business owner. I've been following some people to do um, on on Instagram for research. And I came across a small business owner that her business exploded, and she was talking about doing exactly that. And the biggest thing she said for her success, and I think you can apply this to writing, is basically what you're saying is that that fire has to be there, that fire to really want it. And so you may be at a small place, but you take the steps and you do it one at a time to get get better, to get further until you get where you want to be. And uh, I think that's great advice too, is not comparing yourself to other people, um, but using them as instructors.
3: Yeah, 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 exactly, that's good. Great,
0: all right. Fantastic. Well, thank you, John, for coming on the show and letting us read a little excerpt from your story. And I hope we get lots of folks out there to uh, pick up fake. And uh, really, it's been a little pleasure speaking with you. So thanks for coming on.
3: Thank yes. you, J.W. and Melissa. This has been a lot of fun.
2: Yes, it's been so fun. And definitely go pick up a copy of Fake. It's exciting. I was immediately drawn in, so I'm very <laughs> excited for this book and so excited that you came on the show today. It's been, been great.
0: Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature & Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx magazine, edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com onyxpublications. As a nano-publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.